0: empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back to our wonderful listeners. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with fellow physiotherapists about her experience uh, working in the hospital and acute care post surgery, as well as in the ER. And uh, we're going to see if we can learn some really Important tips and tricks to um, help us live a better life. So welcome to the show Nellen. Hi Awesome, you know, I think probably the best place for us to start is um, Just getting to know you a little bit um, Your background in schooling. Where did you go? uh, And we'll just kind of start there
1: Okay, perfect well, uh, believe it or not, I've always wanted to be a physiotherapist. I've actually known since the age of 12. Oh! <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> so I, since then, I just kind of worked my way through school to get to that goal, and I completed my Master's of Physical Therapy at University of Toronto in 2011. After I graduated, I got a job almost immediately working in a hospital, which is pretty rare. Um, so I started working at my local hospital on the surgical unit. So, we would see um, many different types of surgeries, um, abdominal, thoracic, um, but mainly what I was treating was the um, musculos- or sorry, the orthopedics. So, it was total hip replacements and total knee replacements, and I also saw some hip fractures. So, I spent about five years working there, and then I did another year working in the emergency department before moving on to the private sector. So After my years of working in the hospital, it became pretty clear to me that people need to learn more about their bodies and how they can keep them healthy um, into their golden years. So now I own a chronic pain management clinic called Myofascial Release Mississauga in Streetsville, and we offer exactly that through workshops and movement therapy and hands-on treatment.
0: Awesome. So... Let's talk about, because uh, you spent five years in, you know, post-surgical ward, like, how common are, like, have you seen a, a, a change in the five years you were working with Total Hip? Like, are is are, are these surgeries becoming more common? Um, I'm just kind of curious sort of what you've sort of seen over time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Definitely the request to see orthopedic surgeons over the years seems to be increasing. In fact, the wait times are so long that the government has kind of stepped in to create a screening process for all the referrals um, that these surgeons are getting in some parts of Ontario. So basically only certain referrals will be passed on Um, and how that works is if a patient complains to their family doctor of hip or knee pain um, and then they get an x-ray with any findings of arthritis, they're usually referred to the orthopedic surgeon immediately. And then that's what often creates this um, influx of surgery. So they get a surgical appointment and then um, you know they they are booked usually like six months in advance because the wait list is so long. Um, And uh, when I was in the hospital we were seeing about 30 joint replacements so both hip and knee being done per week Um, and that was in our small little hospital alone so um, I'm sure there would be more (laughs) if the OR time would allow it so yeah for sure Um, the wait lists were just getting longer and longer not only to see the orthopedic surgeons but also to have the surgeries done there were patients who it was the craziest thing that someone would have to cancel their surgery and, you know, someone else would take their spot and I would go see them post-op and they would be so excited <laughs> that they got a spot because yeah, they, they were suffering with um, arthritic pain and didn't want to have to wait almost a, a year sometimes to get a surgery.
0: In your experience, um, are most people happy after like, are, do most people are mo are most people satisfied post-surgically?
1: T- it depends. Um, because I was in acute care, you'll, you often see, um, people in a lot of pain. <laughs> uh, I only had them for a couple of days. So, I, um, I didn't get the opportunity to see them in their, their post-op, uh, rehab, but, um, generally speaking hip replacements they were almost always pretty happy with their results immediately generally they usually feel less pain actually after surgery than the pain they had pre-surgery which is kind of crazy um the knee pain or the knee patients are in a ton of pain so it's hard to say (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, especially because the range of motion is a little harder to get back post-op for a knee um so they, they don't because they don't see the results right away and the pain relief right away it, it's hard for them to really <laughs> express too much contentment with it. Um but we yeah, for the most part a lot of the patients were we're pretty happy when we saw them a few months down the road.
0: Yeah. What um have you seen any factors that you think play a role in, you know, somebody coming out post operatively and feeling better versus not?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean hands down, the patients who take better care of themselves before surgery um, see better results afterwards. Um, There are some patients who actually um, are lucky enough to be advised by their doctor or their surgeon that they should participate, because they have such a long wait time, that they should participate in a sort of prehab program. Um, You know, essentially what that is, is, uh, you know, a, a few months of uh, exercise therapy supervised by a physiotherapist um, to help improve the strength and range of motion of their knee before surgery it also helps them build an exercise tolerance so that um, when they're doing their exercises post-op they can tolerate them a bit better um, those always 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 do better they have better pain management they get the range of motion back faster they're um their mobility improves significantly. Their balance is better, um, and they they often have no problems when it comes to discharge. When they're ready to really leave the hospital, they're ready to go.
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm curious about the. You mentioned they're now screening <clears throat> referrals, um, and I'm uh, and I'm wondering how is that screening happening? Because I imagine not every single person with OA, like was every single person with OA showing up on x-rays going to an orthopedic surgeon for knee pain or like, it just seems like shouldn't conservative management be attempted first?
1: Uh, One would think (laughs) definitely. I mean, it depends on the doctor. Really. Um, some family physicians are, um, well educated on the need for conservative management before surgery. But um, oftentimes you'll see that they'll, you know, a patient complains of pain. They'll say that it's been going on for a while. They'll get their x-ray findings back and the radiology report will say, you know, evidence of osteoarthritis. And so um, all the family physician can really do at that point is prescribe medication. And so if if that's not enough for the patient, which it usually isn't, um, they'll ask to be, Uh, They'll ask for something else, and the first thing that they do is um, refer them to an orthopedic surgeon. Um, The orthopedic surgeon obviously does have their own uh, criteria for whether a patient is suitable for surgery, but generally speaking, if you have x-ray findings and it's affecting your function, um, then you usually get booked. Um, So the way the screening process has changed, uh, in some parts of Ontario anyway, is now, when a family physician um, sends a referral to an orthopedic surgeon's office, that uh, referral automatically gets redirected to um, kind of a screening center that is uh, run by the LIN, which is the stands for the Local Health Integrated Network. And the physiotherapists in that team, they uh, get those referrals and they screen them before they'll send them on to the orthopedic surgeon. So they essentially decide whether this patient has uh, issues that are severe enough that require surgery, or whether um, the conservative management approach, the physiotherapy approach, would be uh, more well suited for them.
0: Absolutely. Um, I, you know, and I would certainly think that even if conservative management didn't necessarily work, the fact that, you know, we're trying to build exercise tolerance, range of motion, you know, trying to sort of improve the current status um because well let, let's face it like if you're in discomfort and you need to exercise it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. but the fact of the matter is you're going to come out of that surgery needing to exercise and it's going to be uncomfortable so you might as well you know start working on it um you know initially to hopefully um have like you said better outcomes mm-hmm. Yeah, post-operatively. And
1: because it that's so true. It's funny how the buy-in is for exercise is so much harder pre-op. <laughs> but then afterwards they don't have a choice. So um it's a bit more of an uphill battle because they're in more pain after surgery. So convincing them they want to do exercise is <laughs> tricky. Yes. Um, but yeah, I know it's so true. Like if, if they could it's almost as if they could if they could only see what it's like post op, then they'd be more willing to do the work pre op, I think.
0: Yeah. Um and I think, you know, um pain education I think plays an important role if you can understand what you know what the pain is that you're experiencing um that it's oftentimes multifactorial as well um and I'm just thinking to myself um about some of the research that's come out about radiological findings Mm -hmm. uh not necessarily correlating with the pain that you're experiencing so I just wonder from your experience like what like I mean, because you've been on the surgical ward Mm -hmm. and you've seen these patients. I just wonder how you kind of see that gap between um, the science saying not all radiological findings correlate with pain and then, you know, you have people coming in for surgery. So I, I wonder what your thoughts on that are.
1: Yeah. And I think that's why the screening process is so important because you have to take both into account. I will say I've never seen a patient come in for surgery who didn't have pretty significant radiological finding. Um, That being said, there are lots of people who have significant radiological findings who have little to no pain. Um, And then it just kind of hits them all of a sudden sometimes. Uh, But yeah, for the most part, a patient would only get surgery if they had significant radiological findings, and um, their pain is affecting their function. Um, But, you know, the truth is, a lot of, (laughs) it's hard to explain the numbers, because there just seems to be so many. Um, What we're seeing, too, is that the patients are getting these onset of symptoms younger and younger as well.
0: And that's, it, it is certainly interesting to see that trend happening? Because, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, just orthopedically, we see that sort of happening as well. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on that? Why do you think that's happening?
1: That's a good question. Because, you know, when you're in school, um, <laughs> you, you, you thought of, we were even taught like osteoarthritis is something that happens to people who are much older. Um and certainly when I started on surgery back in 2012, that was the case. The majority of my patients were in their 70s or 80s. Um, but by the time I finished there, we were seeing people closer um, now to 60 um, getting their joint replaced. Um, I think, I mean, my personal feelings are that um, it, it, it has a lot of different factors to it. Um, one of the main ones being that I don't think people really have been educated on how to take proper care of their bodies, um, just at a baseline level. Uh, you know, so many people uh, live with the pain for so long before they do anything about it. Um, so there's that lack of education there, um, where you know you, you you just sort of push through the pain. Like our society's so busy now. Um, that you just ignore an issue and don't let um, it get taken care of properly, but really bad. And I think that's like kind of a newer thing, um, you know, that like maybe the generation of our parents is, is starting to be pushed into. Um, and because of that, I think, you know, this, this busy, busy, busy lifestyle creates this okay, so I'm not going to seek help, but I'm also not taking care of my body anyway. I'm not exercising regularly. I'm not um, feeding my body with nutrient-dense food. And all of those things combined, um, it, I feel like it just accelerates the timeline for things like degenerative joint disease.
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, so maybe you moved funny and you tweaked your knee a little bit. And, you know, I I sometimes kind of alluded to like, you know, you get like a little rug burn, you know, between the joint line, let's say. And so you're going to have an inflammatory process. You know, your immune system's going to come in and be like, what happened here? All right, let's like clean up the debris and like try to like, you know, um, remodel this area. But then I'm thinking to myself, you know, you have good inflammatory process that's like healing, but what happens when that inflammatory process doesn't stop, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Like what if it doesn't get the stop signal, which, you know, I think some contributing factors may be like stress, lack of sleep, lack of nutrients, um, eating, you know, inflammatory, potentially inflammatory foods, like diet-wise things are not optimized. And I wonder if some of that. Um, maybe causing inflammation to linger a little bit longer. So you're seeing more change and then you're not exercising. We know that muscles do become inhibited, meaning they kind of shut off as a protective mechanism and they don't necessarily come back online unless you wake them up.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Right? Like you gotta get, you know, it's gotta, you gotta kind of coax them back from their vacation and be like, all right guys, Everything's cool. The cleanup crew came in, fixed everything up. All right, it's time to come back to work. Like, you had a nice little vacation. You know, thank you for protecting my joint and making it harder for me to move around. But now, like, now it's time for us to move around. So I wonder if that is a, con- you know, you're saying people are just pushing through the pain, not necessarily focusing on it. I wonder if that in and of itself is also a contributing factor for worsening symptoms.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, like you said, if you want to use the example of, you know, you get tweak your knee, for example, and you get that initial rug burn and that initial inflammatory response, and then it goes away. So you ignore it. Your body does its job, the inflammation process, like it does the cleanup, and then it goes away. So you ignore it. But now what's been created in your body is altered Um, biomechanical function even if it's to like a small degree right so now your joint in space is moving a little differently than it used to because certain muscles are turned off now because of that little tweak that you've got in your knee um, you've got different fascial restrictions that are creating different lines of pull along the joint lines right and so you may be uh, um, putting your knee now at risk for um, that inflammatory process to actually continue because it's moving in a different kind of um plane maybe than it used to move where you didn't have any pain. And so now you're putting yourself at risk for another injury, which can cause a new acute inflammatory process, right? So I think um, going forward it's like it's like a dripping almost as opposed to like a, a flood, whereas like people think of it once the pain starts, they're like, oh this came out of nowhere. But actually it's been years and years and years of um you know joint dysfunction that they didn't know was going on because it didn't really cause that much pain um but it was like a slow kind of drip that's what i kind of think of it as
0: yeah i like that example um because it kind of takes away cuz you know it's kind of hard to explain sometimes to people um I, you know hurt versus harm mm-hmm. type of concept like you know we're talking about force like if you you know, tweak your knee so bad that like you, you know, your ligament, you know, basically ruptures, like that's, that's, you know, we're talking huge, massive, like acute injury versus like this slow buildup of dysfunction, as you said, which may have been from a tweak, um, or maybe something a little bit more significant. Um, but these are important things I think, um, to sort of deal with um as as they come up to optimize and make sure that those dysfunctions you know don't start and I, I don't i don't think there's enough education around like hey i had pain and like a couple weeks later you know maybe 2 3 months later my shoulder pain went away but you know i'll have clients come in who be who keep saying like this is a reoccurring issue and you know i didn't do anything about it well, cuz you know, it kind of hurt for a while and then it stopped. So I just did to do, do went and did my thing and then, right? And and so I'm, you know, I'm looking at these recurrent issues and then it's like, okay, well why is it recurring? Well, cuz that's what's
1: so interesting is people take for granted how good our bodies are at healing. Our body wants to heal, right? And so that first time you got that injury, your body did an awesome job (laughs) helping you become pain free again. And so you were like, yeah, okay. My body took care of it next time or, you know, and then you forget about it and you don't bother getting it addressed. But it's, I think the, the number one thing to take away from that is that, you know, we as physiotherapists were really the first line of defense for any kind of musculoskeletal issue, like to get you on the right track to, Keeping that injury from recurring, right? Especially when we're talking, the knee is such a tricky joint <laughs> for that, especially the knee and the shoulder, I find, um, where we, we often see recurrence, right? Because those are very complex joints that, um, and particularly because our knees, we use them, we weight bear every single day, <laughs> um, they get a lot of wear and tear. Um, so, you know, one little injury on a body that's been walking for 40 years, for example you know, it can make a big, big change and and create these recurring patterns. Um, and just going back to, you know, taking good care of ourselves and educating ourselves on that. Um, people really aren't, uh, educated on not just how to take care of their bodies, um, from an exercise or from a physical point of view, but from a nutrition point of view as well, from a stress point of view, those things really do contribute to inflammation majorly. So, even though you may have had an injury that went away or so you think um you know if you are if your stress levels are constantly high if you are um you know eating really poorly those things are going to create a baseline high level of inflammation that's going to make you so much more
0: prone to another injury as well absolutely uh, and and this is why we're talking about this right <laughs> trying to get trying to get the word out mm-hmm. um Let's change gears um, and move into that acute, that very acute phase of like an actual like injury that occurs that you were seeing in the ER. So when you were working in the ER, what kind, like what things were you seeing? What what was your caseload mostly looking like?
1: So I would say, of my caseload, was um, what we called consults on what we called non-injurious falls. So when we say non-injurious, that means that they didn't fracture anything. (laughs) They certainly injured themselves, yes. Um, And so they're in pain, but uh, because they didn't fracture anything, um, that means that that's like the first criteria that they're probably not in need of being admitted to the hospital. Um, And so then the ER physician, after seeing the radiology report and ruling out a fracture, would call me in to um, now assess um, the function of the patient based on the injury they had to see how severe the injury is and whether or not they would need to be admitted. So what I would be assessing is um, obviously their pain level, (laughs) Um, but at a... at the onset, we try to give them pain medication to, um, you know, mediate that. And so we see, you know, with a little bit of Tylenol in them, can they um, perform their basic functions, like sitting up, getting out of bed, walking with or without a gait aid, um, a gait aid being, you know, a walker or a cane or um, something like that. And, um, you know, if if they're able to have enough stamina or endurance to perform all the activities they'd need to at home, like going up and down this, walking to and from the bathroom, walking to and from the kitchen, Um, you know, if they're younger, if they're able to still drive, um, just the basic activities that we would do every day. That's what we assess. Um, And then uh, based on our assessment, we decide whether this is someone who's functional enough to go home or functional enough to go home with some supports in place. That's right.
0: Um so, so you're seeing a lot of falls, you're assessing basic, you know, basic ability to move around their home, make sure that they can return, you know, return safely. Um, what is your did you have a role in falls prevention? Like, sure. were you doing a lot of education around like, okay, so let's talk about how this is not going to happen again. Of course.
1: Yeah, that has to be part of it. Um, especially because the majority of the patients that I saw are elderly individuals. Um, and for the most part, <laughs> it was their first time that they had uh, fallen and injured themselves. And Unfortunately, there were many times where this was kind of a, it came as a surprise. <laughs> they didn't really see it coming. And um, and for those people, they really, really um, are a good opportunity to get some great education on how they can prevent this from happening again. Because of course, the last thing I want to see them is to see them coming back into the ER again. <laughs> I, I usually say to my, or would say to my patients when they left, it's like, I hope I never see you again in the best way possible. <laughs> Um, yeah, the education is so important. I think I would spend the majority of the time that I was with the patient educating um, because that's really knowledge is power. So much so in this case. So um, what I would be usually addressing is you know after I learn uh, the mechanism of their their injury or or how they fell, um, we could talk about things like their home environment. Um, we could um, as a team kind of work with the medical uh, aspect of it, talking to the physician about, you know, maybe the patient indicated that they felt dizzy right before they fell. um, And, you know, what kind of uh, root cause is lingering there that may need to be addressed. Um, You know, things like whether when, when they were walking or when they were up and fell, is it because it was the middle of the night and they were trying to get to the bathroom? um, And so they were, in a rush and also it was dark. So they weren't, uh, you know, able to really see where they were going. Um, things like that, things like whether they had their, their gait aid, if they use one within reach, um, you know, what any kind of factor that would um, help them prevent a fall, those are the things that we address. Um, so it's a lot of education for the patient for sure. Um, but I try to get Um, I would always try to get the patient and the family member or the support person in front of me and give them the same education because, you know, after a fall, a lot of the patients were potentially a bit disoriented or in shock or just in so much pain that they couldn't really hear what I was telling them. And so it's so important to also have the family on board with these things because, you know, an 85 year old woman who lives alone, um, she may not be even able to, you know, change the lighting in her home to make sure that it's more responsive in the middle of the night. She may not be able to remove things like trip hazards, like area rugs. Um, she may not even have a walker yet, but we've deemed that she needs one because of her balance. So that family support is so, so critical um, to, to help bring those those supports
0: into the home. Absolutely. Let's um, Let's talk about the support you know family member support or friends um what what are some early signs that somebody might be at risk of falling like is there anything that people should kind of like you know be looking out you know you're visiting your parents house they live alone they're elderly you know what what can family members kind of do to sort of mitigate some of that risk for for a parent
1: For sure. So, um, I would say you've already identified the first two, (laughs) some of the biggest ones. So, an elderly person who lives um, alone—that is—that should be number one, your first red flag. (laughs) An elderly person who lives alone, Um, especially if they live alone in a home with stairs. Um, Especially in Toronto, we see this a lot, and in Mississauga, we're seeing it a lot now too, um, where we have elderly people living alone in you know, back splits, side splits, homes where they have to do the stairs a lot <laughs> to get to the things that they need to get to. Like there are sometimes even in, uh, homes where their their bathroom is not on the same level as their bedroom, and so they have to actually do a, a short flight of stairs just to go to the bathroom. Um, you know, the kitchen's not on the same level. All of those things. So, anytime you have an elderly person who lives alone in a that does not live on a in a one level home. Um, you should start thinking about um, whether or not they're safe <laughs> from go. Now, of course, the, the, the health of the person is a big uh, factor as well. So, you know, if you have a 75-year-old person who is physically active every single day, they're very strong, they've never shown any signs of balance challenges like, you know, um, tripping over things or losing their balance when they're going up or downstairs or even, you know, coming in and out of a car, things like that, especially when you have level changes, that's when you tend to see people showing their balance challenges um, out in the community. And um, so, you know, when you have, you're visiting your family, family's visiting you, you don't pay attention to like how they're moving around. Um, and if, if they look great and stable, then awesome. Everything's good, but if they don't, <laughs> then they are definitely at risk for falls. Um, some things that can compound that from a
0: health. Okay, we were having a little bit of a technical. Bleh. So I'm just going to get you to, um, to kind of repeat. So what are, what are some additional things that might compound? I think you were tr- saying like some medical things that might compound. I'm not sure if that's where you were going, but. Absolutely.
1: Yes. So a few things to look at um, from a medical point of view are any pre-existing or new vision problems. And so even if a patient has a pre-existing vision problem, if they're the kind of person who maybe doesn't use their glasses or leaves them behind, um, so it doesn't optimize their vision the best way they can, that is something to look out for. Any uh, memory or other cognitive deficits um, that would uh, create a barrier from knowing when a situation is safe, or how to make a situation safe, Um, and lack of support. So an individual who lives alone, who doesn't have any other supports, like not even a neighbor, or a family that visits regularly, Um, or friends that visit regularly, that is concerning. Um, And then, of course, if they have an existing mobility issue that um, creates a balance challenge for them, so if they already use a cane or a walker, um, or if you've noticed uh, um, that they have uh, balance issues for whatever reason, um, um, maybe they are struggling with a medical condition that creates that balance issue so a good example of this is like a diabetic neuropathy so um, we see so many diabetic patients who have uh, low sensation or no sensation in their feet Um, that creates a huge balance issue Um, and then all of those things all together so you kind of have to look at the whole picture um, to see if anything could be affecting someone's balance. Obviously, as physiotherapists, we're trained to look for those things um so if you are even just getting a funny feeling, I would consider consulting a physiotherapist for something like that
0: absolutely so some I guess some basic things you're saying, like make sure you know proper lighting, maybe some night lights or even motion lights if 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 appropriate, removing rugs or trip hazards um to make the home certainly um safer and just looking around you know like even how the furniture is set up like is it you know can they make it around these things especially if they're using a gate aid are they going to get caught on it uh caught on a corner or things of that nature just even some simple things like that can be certainly helpful
1: oh absolutely um i really do think uh, especially for people who live alone Um, Or even if they live with, um, you know, their spouse or partner who's also elderly and has their own balance challenges, um, they probably can't rely on them. And um, so things like removing clutter, removing area rugs, making sure their gate aid is always close by, having that family support. But what's interesting is with the new sort of technology that's become available on the market today, um, there's so many other extra things that people can use to have that sort of extra level of security. So uh, motion sensor lights are are one really good one. One thing that's becoming more and more popular is um, devices like uh, Google Home or those sorts of voice-activated devices where, you know, a patient can or a client can, uh, you know, say, you know, Google, turn on the basement lights or Google, shut off the um, oven or I don't know, something like that. (laughs) Um, So that they if they're, if they have this challenge and doing something like reaching the light switch at the, bu- the base of the basement stairs, is a really hard thing for them to do that, um, you know, a family member could come in and change the setup so that all they have to do is use a voice command um, to, to activate things like that. Um, the other part of the house that's really, really important to make sure that we address is also the bathroom. Um, this is where a lot of falls happen. <laughs> Makes sense, right? because we are in a a slippery environment. Um, So there's lots of things that can be done there and equipment that can be brought in. And uh, actually a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist can actually come into your home and do an assessment um, for the bathroom, but also the rest of your house to assess its safety.
0: Amazing. I think that's certainly a a good idea if you're, you know, uh, what is it? Um, An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? So getting it, assessed, I mean, if the, if your parent wants, you know, it's fairly independent and you just want to create that extra layer of safety, just have somebody come in and, you know, just set the house up for, you know, set set them up for success really. Um, so that you don't have to then, you know, have to deal with the outcomes of a fall. Um, I think that's been really, really helpful and educational for I think, you know, family members, you know, we have aging population. Um, we we know people who are elderly, you know, what what and and you know, wait lists for getting into long term care homes and nursing homes, like, you know, people are staying home. Um, so what is you know, what are the things that we can do to make that um a safer place for them to be? So I think that was really, really helpful. Um So Nellen, where, you know, if people are interested in chatting with you, um, speaking with you, finding you, where, where can people find you? Absolutely. Um, I'm happy to share. So um,
1: you can find us at, our clinic is called Myofascial Release Mississauga. The website is myofascialmississauga.com. People don't usually know how to spell myofascial. So it's M-Y-O-F-A
0: s-c-i-a-l this is oh, um and, and for and socials you can
1: find me, me
0: sorry go ahead oh i was gonna say as you were trying to spell it uh the internet decided to uh pause on you there for a moment so what i'm going to say to our listeners is we'll post links in the show notes um so if you want to okay. find the links and you want to get the spelling correctly we'll we'll put those links in the show notes so that uh it's easy for for them to um to uh, find you but yes continue with the social media and we'll put those links in there too
1: yeah so social media is really easy as well as just at Mississauga on facebook and on instagram
0: awesome well i want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show share with us your experience and your knowledge and your tips and hopefully um you know one person out there you know really um you know, listen. Well, I hope more than one person, but even if we reach just one person who, you know, takes some of our tips and, you know, goes to see their physio because they have pain or, you know, goes to their family home and looks around, you know, we, we've done our, um, our job. But I want to thank you very much for coming on the show to share that with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really do help, hope that I was helpful to someone. <laughs> I, I definitely think so. And, um, you know, it's just good for physios to also chat and refresh as I don't oftentimes I mean I didn't work in a hospital and didn't work in ER so these are always good uh, good tips for for us to share with our patients as well and as usual we always like to thank our listeners for participating and listening and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast um, wherever you're accessing this podcast just click the subscribe button share with your friends and family members because you don't know How are you going to positively impact everybody's, uh, somebody's life? And of course, this way you'll stay up to date with the latest and greatest uh, episodes. So we'll say bye for now. Take care. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.